the narrative that the United States ha is particularly evil is is simply a different version of American exceptionalism. Um, and the 1619 Project seems to have, uh, as you suggest, and as John Gann suggests, a, a different origin story that maps onto that that kind of determinacy uh, and, and focus on the United States as if we're not part of a global history uh, and, and power dynamics that always occur, right? Uh, empire is not new, right? Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. We are welcoming back to the podcast uh, Professor Matt Karp, who is a historian at uh, Princeton, if I'm not mistaken. Tenured, sir. That's tenured. Right. Congratulations. Here to stay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, very good. Um, just, just try getting yeah. rid of me now. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe not if uh, you know C uh, Chris Rufo gets his his way, but we can get into that in a minute. But yeah, you've got this article in Harper's uh, called "History as End," and um, you know it's sort of like summing up the last like three four years of discourse about uh, history. You know, and it's sort of like function in politics and so on. Um, and, you know, maybe to kick us off, if if you could tell us, like, you identify, like, oh, it's, it's a long, ex extensive essay, but I think, you know, one of the things you mentioned, you know, in, de in, in detail is uh, something you call historicism and the, uh, and how that relates to the 1619 project and a sort of cohort of, uh, writers who talk about like the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and and so on. And so, can you tell us first what you mean by that? What and what is the critique? Yeah, I mean, I I think you know this essay has been in the works for a long time, and actually, you know, because um, I think the phenomenon of you know the politics of history occupying a a large share of the politics of politics. Uh, is um, is one that's been happening for the, over the last five years, if not longer. Um, you know, maybe we, you know, we're due for, our, you know, a round of the history wars every every generation. There definitely was a big rumble in the 90s. And now, you know, this is the moment. Um, and, and, and the way in which like both historians and which and sort of theories of history or ideas about American history are mobilized to sort of as a sort of primary way into understanding urgent contemporary questions. I think that's, you know, that's gone up since, especially in, in U.S. history, especially when it comes to sort of the history of, of, um, of American racism and racial oppression going back to slavery um, since, you know, since Ferguson and then since George Floyd again, there have been these like sort of successive waves. And it's, you know, 1619 represents the, the, the New York Times project is just the kind of the largest in my view, like in terms of the discourse, it occupies the most space and it's the most kind of comprehensive statement of this sort of, I think what has become rather recently, uh, not uncontestedly as the article talks about, but I think still nevertheless has become the kind of dominant perspective toward American history within, um, on the, on the broad liberal left, especially the kind of institutional liberal left. Um, that is in universities and, uh, the like liberal media, which definitely includes the New York Times. And, um, and it was striking to me, you know, in a lot of ways, how much this, this new conception has diverged from older versions of liberalism and what, what both intellectual and political work it does. And I mean, I can just monologue here a little bit if you want me to talk about that argument and that the critique I have of it or, but that's the sort of premise. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Maybe if, if you could also in, in doing that, because I think part of the thing people need to understand that gets a lot, 
it gets conflated quite a bit is the separation of, okay, historically, what's true and what's not true? Like, what narratives are more or less accurate? And then what, as you said, like, what work is being done? What's the function politically uh, of this focus or, or this intervention, right? Uh, or of the 1619 project. So, so maybe as, as you get into it, you can kind of separate those two because I think critiques get mixed up as, in terms of which, which sphere they're in, right? Yeah, that's really helpful. I think that's right because, um, you know, with the 1619 project, for the last couple of years, most of the arguments have been about, you know, various in the press has often been about, you know, various groups of historians criticizing the historical interpretations or the facts themselves. And it's just the sort of a history arg- It's a historical argument that somehow gets national press coverage. But, um, you know, my argument actually focuses on, yeah, on the political work and the and sort of the larger political implications of this new understanding of history. But, you know, to be a little bit crude. I mean, the, the, the directionality and the kind of structure, the, the implotment, if I were to be sort of hyper academic about, of the, of, of this sort of new dispensation of, you know, liberal left views of American history in public, it, you know, really emphasizes origins and continuity. That's the thrust of my reading of it anyway. That, you know, 1619 project is centered around this, this, this opening date to American history doesn't begin in 1776 or, you know, with the Mayflower in 1620, it begins in 1619 when the first enslaved person, you know, ostensibly, although that's also highly disputed, arrived in North America uh, or arrived in the 13 colonies. I mean, again, they didn't exist, et cetera. But, um, you know, once you start looking at it, you know, origins slip right through your fingers. But, but the, but the, the, the real issue is the United States was founded um, the founding essence of the United States exists in the arrival of enslaved Africans. And that essence, you know, the, the way the 1619 project sort of elaborates its argument is, is sort of tracing the seeds of that oppression through all American history as this kind of continuous through line where you kind of warp from either colonial or antebellum slavery or sometimes Jim Crow directly to the present moment where various inequalities and kind of perversions and opp- ongoing oppressions in 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 21st century America are kind of revealed uh, and explained by their roots in this origin point. Um, and I think that, I mean, that's, that's 1619, but I think I mean, there are other elements of the, the project that's different people have highlighted, but to me, that's the sort of real thrust of it. And I think that that is a common impulse in a number of, of, of books and, and, and articles and sort of, you know, historical interventions in politics on, on the left in the last few years or on the, again, I should say the liberal left. I think it's led by, it's, it's received more cultural power in some ways because of liberals have embraced it or a certain kind of liberal, uh, other, other old school liberals obviously really hate it. That's, that's part of the, the, um, (laughs) the dispute. Right. What's, what's funny here is because there's different, I, I assume history as end is a play on words and end is like talking about telos and teleology. Right. And because there are these, uh, you know, two mirror, teleological tales, right? The march to progress, right? Where uh, inevitably everything will get better. And that's a very liberal idea in certain ways. And then, and then what you're describing, which is like, you know, uh, just inevitably we're stained by our original sin and, and, and we can't, rup- there's no rupture, there's no break from the legacy of that and so forth. And, and I, I think part of what you're talking about is like the left really needs to avoid both of those because they both reinforce the status quo, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was, I mean, that was just to sort of historicize the, the 21st century. I mean, I really am struck by the piece is struck by, but I am also struck by the, the gap between the kind of, you know, Obama's, 
you know, the, the almost maybe the most famous, as far as I can tell, like sort of speechwriter line of Obama's presidency where he, um, you know, invokes Martin Luther King, who's actually invoking the abolitionist Theodore Parker. But anyway, um, you know, the, the moral arc of the universe is, is long, but it bends toward justice. This kind of, you know, um, belief in not automatic, but in a sense ordained, um, I think literally, um, you know, moral, moral progress that, you know, over the span of time, things do get better, you know, but be just sort of in the nature of things to, to, yes, to metaphors that are really about our biblical and our biological are either the or original sin. And so it's in you. And, you know, I've had conversations with various Catholics about how eradicable original sin is or isn't. Um, you know, I've been put in my place by, by, by a few who said, no, the whole point of original sin is you can actually, you know, overcome it in, in some way. So, uh, you know, maybe point taken, but I don't think that that's how the metaphor works culturally. Um, and, 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 and even more powerful, I think, is the genetic metaphor, the the kind of genetic, the idea that this is in, in, this has been sort of written into our genetic code, uh, which is in which case it's it, it it seems you know fiendishly difficult, if not impossible, literally impossible to remove. Um, so that that's a that's a totally different. I think it's an idea, different ideological posture. It's, I think it's a different intellectual, you know, way to understand, you know, what history is, um, which is part of the, the piece too, even beyond the kind of what the functional political implications are and what the, what the, what, what it means for struggle, uh, as you say, um, as you say, in terms of, uh, you know, why the left, why you can, you know, you can already see the way I'm talking about this, why a left that is cent that wants to center struggle and the possibility of change and even revolution is going to be disturbed by this order of things. But I think it's also a, in, a, for me, a frustrating mode to kind of even understand history itself. Um, as a, a, a from an intellectual perspective, even leaving aside the implications, is it too cute, Matt? Is it a little too cute, a little too neat? Yeah, oh, too cute a story. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just. Um, I mean, it's, it's as if, I mean, this was the frustrating thing about, about, about the, the project, about that project for me, or one of the many frustrating things is that it just, it, it really, it does a lot of, you know, it goes into warp drive a lot. You know, you really don't, how do you have history if you don't have change? If you don't understand, I mean, even granting and, and say in the piece, I don't, I don't do this, but I'm happy to grant. Um, I don't give a lot of space to this, but I'm happy to grant that there are enormous and highly significant continuities in American history. Like that's, that's not a position I'm arguing against, nor am I saying that slavery has no or minimal impact on the, the, the subsequent 160 years of American life, like far from it. But those impacts and those continuities themselves are shaped by all sorts of other really important historical changes that in the kind of rush to sort of nail down this almost like linear connection between origin point and present day, you know, you lose and you lose a sense of, okay, you know, I mean, and I, I think this move has a certain rhetorical power, but it's the same thing with that, you know, that documentary, the 13th, you know, that, that kind of wants to look at, um, uh, you know, the origins of mass incarceration as in this one line of the 13th amendment in, in emancipation. It's the same kind of, 
originalist moment. It's like, no, actually, if you look at the history of mass incarceration, most of the important things happened in the mid to late 20th century. And like that history has its own history that needs to be told and understood. And those specific oppressions, and they are, and, and many of them are racialized, um, need to be, you know, reckoned with on their own terms, not traced back to some, you know, deep, deep, m- deep in the midst of times prequel, you know, that is gonna, that is gonna sort of, you know, reveal a true essence. Yeah. Th- <clears throat> this, this was my, my thought, you know, I, I feel like the intervention of the 1619 project is, has been like positive in many ways in terms of, I just remember like the high school curricula I had when I was, you know, coming up in rural Colorado and it was like, we spent no time in reconstruction. There was a strong element of the, the, uh, not, not in my actual AP history class was decent on this question, but I remember a previous history class where there was like, Oh, maybe it was states' rights. Maybe it was slavery, you know, views differ. That part is, is fine. And, and as you say, like, I would be, I would be perfectly like, I think you could, we could make a pretty good argument that, uh, like slavery and race oppression basically has been the central political issue of American history from start to finish. And like, it's just like, it's fucked the country up in so many ways. But I was thinking, uh, you know, you could write, you could do like an 18, a 16, 19 project in like 1850, where you just conclude slave slavery is central to the American project. We're never going to get rid of it. Look at this. You know, it's like it's completely dominated our politics. All the richest people in the country are slave owners. The biggest concentration of wealth is slaves and slave back securities and stuff. The whole like political class is implicated. And, uh, you know, in a different universe, that maybe even would have been right for a long time. Like, like slavery. I mean, maybe this is a con- contestable interpretation. Slavery dies because the South fucks up. Like they start this war. Like they could have held on to it at least for a lot longer. Like Lincoln was not going into this war, like with saying, you know, we're going to destroy slavery from the start and like had a coalition behind doing that. He was saying, restrict slavery to the places where it is now that's my, that's my argument and the south is like i want everything i want all the marbles all the time they start this war they lose it as a ne- as like a necessary consequence of the war slavery is destroyed so now there's like like a huge leap forward in terms of racial equality slavery destroyed just in like this random happenstance and that like you know, who could predict things like what things could happen? And I think, you know, we, we had you on to talk about your previous, uh, uh, article about the know nothings and so forth. And like that, that was like a process of politicization that depended on creating a sense of possibility. What could be done about this? And, you know, making in a sense like a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy about the, 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 you know, the, the boundaries of political possibility. And, um, you know, talking about racism as like this kind of quasi mystical, like thing, I was reading this, uh, uh, article by Derek Bell about, um, you know, a critical race theory guy, uh, about race realism. And he is like, his conclusion is that 
like similar to Clarence Thomas, uh, racism is never going away. There's really nothing you could do about it. And you just have to reconcile yourself, you know, to the, 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 and I feel like that's just a very, you know, a self-fulfilling prophecy in the opposite direction. Don't even fight. I mean, you a, know, the irony, the irony of course, is all of the founders thought that slavery would just gradually die away on its own, right? Like <laughs> they were like, let's ban the importation of slaves. We'll just, we'll just do that, you know, compromise with these old dudes so they can make their hair or whatever. And then we don't have to worry about it. Maybe we'll figure out what to do with them. That's a problem. But like, anyway, lots of, lots of historical evidence for rupture and, and things going against the, the trend, right? Yeah. I mean, Ryan, I really like that idea of like what the 1619 project would have looked like in, in, in 1850. But I actually sort of, you know, I, I did sort of, I'm going to be a little bit crankier though about what I think its overall impact is. I mean, I know what you mean, of course, compared to, to take the first part of what you said, the, compared to a kind of, a lost cause curriculum, obviously, or even a brother's war kind of reconciliationist yeah. model. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what they were fighting for, really, but everyone sure was brave. <laughs> you know, everybody everybody was incredibly courageous. I don't know Patriots, why all of them. The, a million Americans basically died, you know, slaughtered each other and just and just died of horrible diseases on, you know, marching around Virginia and Kentucky and Tennessee. Um, it I mean, was about in, something. In Gone with the Wind, they were were having great balls and having a good yeah. time. They had this great civilization and it was gone with the wind. It was very sad. <laughs> it was very sad. It was, a, it was a very sad moment. But 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 wow, what courage. Um, no, I mean, so like centering, I mean, this is the thing where, you know, certain people want to sort of sympathetically, you know, say Hannah Jones, all she wants to do is center, you know, black, say black history is at put it at the center of American history and say, you know, and People have talked about the kind of nationalist quality of that, that like, you know, black history is we are the truest Americans in some sense be- because of our centrality and in, in, in these struggles to make our, to make American democracy count. To me, none of that is the problem. Like that is great. Um, the problem is I want the emancipationist legacy to, 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 to triumph. The problem is that they don't actually talk about the Civil War in the 1619 Project. There's nothing on the Reconstruction, hardly either, or civil rights. It's none of that. It's like, honestly, this article wouldn't have been written if they'd put, you know, three or four of those essays in there that were really all about, you know, even, you know, black abolitionists. I mean, I'm not, I'm not even doing a thing where it's like, well, we needed to, you know, where's, where's William Lloyd Garrison? Like, or, you know, or where's Simon <laughs> Portland Chase? You know, he's my guy. Like, there's no, there's no Frederick Douglass in there, really. Um, there's no, there's, there's none of the, of the, of the kind of, of the, of the struggle. And, and you talk about what the 1619 project would have looked like in, in 1850, I mean, Frederick Douglass, in his most famous speech that like the only speech that anyone really ever reads That's from right. him, and yet they still don't read anything except the two paragraphs where he right. just denounces American hypocrisy, which is great. And, you know, he's a good polemicist. And but it's like a little bit of a version of the, you know, only two paragraphs that anybody reads from MLK on the right. Um, I think the yeah. only people, yeah. the only the only on the left, we only read those two paragraphs of, of, of Frederick Douglass, where he says for, you know, shameless hypocrisy and barbarism. America stands without a rival and it's like yeah hit him again hit him again but <laughs> but and that's true but the whole the whole point of that speech I, I mentioned this in the piece is that he's refusing a 1619 project like narrative about America even when he had a much better case to make than people would have now you know in terms of centering origins and continuity as opposed to rupture and change uh, you know in 1850 they had just you know the the they, they had just passed this is 1852 they just passed the fugitive slave bill 
they just buried the controversy in the compromise of 1850, which was seemed to be seemed to be broadly popular. And, you know, the anti-slavery parties are kind of cabined in at around five percent of the of the national vote. There's there's really no as Ryan, you know, gave all the stats and figures about the 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 importance of slavery in the economy and the dominance of slaveholder the slaveholding class in the political system could be you know even further elaborated and yet Douglas goes up there and says American history is about revolution American history is about and he's you know in effect claiming I mean and there are echoes of what Hannah Jones is trying to do there in the sense that he's saying you know he's not doing a kind of uh you know, other other black abolitionists did. William Nell wrote a book, you know, Colored Patriots of the Revolution, where it basically tried to say, you know, Crispus Attucks and other and other black people like won the revolution for 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 America. Douglas doesn't do that, but he just almost like kind of metaphorically claims the revolution itself as 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 foundational to what the United States is. It's not really a theory of history because you know it's not. He's not actually saying like you know the essence of America is revolution. He's just saying. This is possible. Like this, this has happened and this can happen, even though it looks incredibly unlikely in 1852. And to me, both intellectually, if you think about the span of modern history and how much unpredictable shit happens and how much rupture there is, as you guys were saying, um, and politically, obviously, for obvious reasons, that's so much more powerful. And I would, I would much rather have a kind of Frederick Douglass project, you know, a read of history that it doesn't have to be triumphalist. Like, I think some people then look at that and are like, wait a minute, you just want to say, you just want to point out, you're just saying they mentioned the bad parts and not the good parts. Why don't you mention the good parts, like the abolitionists and the, and the civil rights movement? It's not about the bad or the good. It, it can, the narrative can still be about like the how speech, far we have to go, but there has to be. Yeah. Right? Anyway. Yeah. It's the perfect balance. No, I want to ask you about the speech a little bit more because like, it, the balance he strikes, right? He even praises the, the founders and, and, you know, the ideals uh, of the founding and so forth. Uh, but interestingly, and so, so here's what I'm wondering what you, what you think about in terms of the political work to be done. You know, he, he basically like poo-poos the idea that what we need is light or like truth or understanding as if people don't know that slavery is bad and evil, right? He's like, this is a joke. We don't need, in other words, like deliberative discourse. We don't need to just talk about ideas, right? What we need is not light, but thunder, Right. And he, and he wants to awaken the conscience and the passions and, and get people to feel morally righteous and do something about this. Right. And so I wonder what you think about how his ability to do that with the history and with the context and, and his understanding of what's necessary, how that applies to, to what's going on politically now with these various projects. No, that's a great that's a that's a great that's a great point. Uh, I, I Yeah. You know, not the. Uh, I'm now, I don't know why I'm hearing, uh, Bob Seeger, the Bob Seeger line, like saw the lightning, waited on the thunder. Um, but, but yeah, he's Douglas is like, let's have, let's start with the thunder. Yeah. I don't think there's enough. I do. Th I, I mean, I guess I would say, I don't think there's enough thunder in the 1619 project. I think, I think it's of a piece with, and now we can talk a little bit more about if you want, or this leads to a conversation about, you know, the, 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 liberal politics today and you know what what my you know critique of it which you guys are very familiar with but it's um it's it the 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 i think the political kind of impact of 1619 is for a certain class of sort of primarily white but not entirely white just but 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 almost overwhelmingly kind of college educated liberal readers who Already were somewhere in the, in the kind of mushy middle in their view of American history and are, and are now kind of more, are, are sort of hardened in, 
and 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 you know more more certain about the importance of slavery and racism to that history and so that's that's like the the good consequence i suppose you could say if you if if it makes a certain set of people sort of more militant about wanting to achieve equality arguably but i think the the function of it is that it doesn't unlike i mean the truth is and this is i guess an own on myself because it's not about you know i want to turn this into class politics and class dealignment and blah, blah, blah. The truth is Frederick Douglass gave that speech to a totally white liberal upper class audience in like Rochester that were, I mean, there were some, you know, there were plenty of plebeian abolitionist anti-slavery folk. It wasn't, they weren't, but like in 1852 at that, at that, at that event, it was a New York Times reader-ish kind of audience, no question. Um, but, but yeah, but I think the whole cosmology, as you say, is, is different. It's, it's about what, uh, it's about, you know, not, not just what, what history allows us, but what history requires of us. And I think it's the 1619 project doesn't seem to require anything, but a kind of recognition or an awakening. There's no, there's no action. There's, there's certainly, there's no, I don't think that there's a revolutionary consciousness in here at all. It's a kind of, um, it's a sort of a, sort of a solemn acknowledgement is, it seems to be the kind of, you know, the starkest upshot of this. Yeah. Yeah, solemn, solemn is the word. It's true. Um, and be, before before we move on, I I, I wanted to mention I, I I've seen other people make this critique, but but there's only one. <clears throat> if you're talking about like you know original sin, the great crimes of the American state, and so on, there's only one thing that really compares with slavery, and that's what was done to the Native Americans. And from what I read, I mean, I didn't read every single essay in the 1619 Project, but but I. From what I've seen, there's almost nothing in there about that. And, and that's the only thing arguably was even worse at what happened to slaves. You know, we're talking about basically a genocide. We took an entire continent from people that lived there and killed almost every single one of them. Um, and at the same time, though, if you're, you know, if you're to sort of say like a 1492 project, uh, you know, starting with like the first people killed by white Europeans, uh, I don't know if it was that year or the next year. Probably was that year. Um, yeah. That that uh, you know you you could you could say that that also has changed quite a lot over times. Like 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 the Navajos still exist, unlike a lot of uh, other tribes which have been you know more or less exterminated over the over the course of the of the history. And I feel like you know. Like if I were going to do sort of rhetorical jujitsu, that that would be like that by their sort of their own lights and like, you know, sort of like the, uh, you know, politics of deference and like, you know, centering the people who have suffered the most in history. That seems like a really big thing to leave out. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's of a piece. That's a really, you know, uh important part uh but of a piece of a number of critiques that this, these aren't my critiques but i think they've for the most part have landed with me about the kind of narrowness of the project's compass you know that you know that are about it's you know it's it's um it's nationalism it's focus exclusively on the united states as if you know just in its own terms that you know chattel slavery racialized chattel slavery is something that only happened in the united states you know it's sort of missing a broader atlantic context yes it's missing 
kind of, you know, the history of settler colonialism and the conquest of the continent and relations with Native Americans. It's missing, um, you know, all for all sorts of other kinds of racializations that emerge in American history from, you know, relating to, um, you know, the, uh, you know, Latin America, the conquest of, of, of Northern Mexico, uh, immigration. It's, it's not, I mean, I, to me though, I think those criticisms all land. Um, and I think, you know, are accurate about what the project is or isn't. I'm a, I feel like they're a little less fundamental because I'm willing to yeah. say, okay, but this is about this. It's not pretending to, I mean, it, it is pretending to say that it's all American history. So it's, it's grandiose and fair enough for the criticisms are absolutely fair. And I think, like I said, accurate, but I think they, I think. A, a, a little bit more generous reading of what the 1619 project is trying to do is not to say that it's incompatible with any of those larger other additional contexts, but to say this story is the story that we're telling. My problem is how with how they tell it. Right. And the function that it has, which, as you said, is just like mere recognition or kind of the liberal focus on, uh, you know, how white people feel. Are you feeling guilty enough? As if, like, if enough white people feel guilty, then that'll dramatically change the conditions in the ground for people that have, you know, inherited generations of oppression. But, uh, you know, as you, one thing we, we both, I know, loved in your piece is when you write about the funhouse mirror of American exceptionalism. Uh, because we've talked about this before. Like, there, the, the, the function of it is, is, you know, all to what we've, we've just said about, um, not doing anything, but like the idea that, that the narrative that the United States ha- is particularly evil is, is simply a different version of American exceptionalism. Um, and the 1619 project seems to have, uh, as you suggest, and as John Gann suggests, a, a different origin story that maps onto that, that kind of determinacy, uh, and, and focus on the United States as if we're not part of a global history. Uh, and, and power dynamics that always occur, right? Uh, empire is not new, right? Uh, and so, like, maybe you could talk a bit about how we can break free from the kind of narratives that, that support, as you, as you mentioned, Biden's notion that nothing will fundamentally change. Like, what, what kind of, of, right? What kind of, uh, understanding of, of historical narratives should we be, uh, having in order to, to focus on the usefulness of history for actually changing things? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a big question. And, you know, this is where I'm going to, I'm going to take that pitch and it's going to be a called strike right down the middle. But I, I, you know, I can kind of, I'll, this is my, you know, this, I'll, I'll give you the, the, the expression on my face as I watch that one go by because I can't really swing at it because I don't have a good answer. But I mean, I'll just say just nibbling around the edges. For one, for me, actually, I guess this is, I don't come at this in the same way exactly as Gans. I don't see the nationalism as the root of the problem here. I mean, I, I'm just coming back to my, to, he's, I can't say that he's my guy. And in no sense is Frederick Douglass my guy. Uh, the guy. He's just yours. Your You're guy. the one. Yeah. He's yours. It's just that he's Matt in, Carp he's in, has claimed he's in, Frederick he, Douglass. <laughs> he's a significant figure in the period that I study. Um, but he was in no sense afraid of that, of that nationalist narrative. And, and I think that it, to me, that's not, a real, I don't think that's the problem that anybody has with 1619. And that's not, uh, of course, we need, you know, international and transnational and global analysis too, and et cetera, et cetera. So it's a fair thing to note. But I don't think that, 
um, you know, Douglas, his whole life, both as a radical abolitionist in this moment, you know, um, was, you know, he flirted briefly with emigrationism in the late 50s, but really it was a thin flirtation. He was, um, and I think in this, he was characteristic of the main line of black politics, um, something that doesn't come up at all in Hannah Jones's piece, except in her essay, in her own essay, but she doesn't talk about the history of this. That kind of claim of like, we are the true Americans is a really deep current in black history and black politics. And, and, um, you know, I think arguably stronger, uh, on the whole than separatism, than, than sort of any kind of separatism or other forms of black nationalism that we're way more familiar with on the left. There's a book by, uh, Van Goss that just came out. He's a historian at, I think, Franklin and Marshall which is an amazing excavation of antebellum black politics, basically, which you'd think doesn't, ex- it sounds like an oxymoron. It's because it's like, well, wait a minute, they could only vote in a few states where hardly any black people lived. So how do they do politics? But in fact, you know, there were thousands of people in those states and they did politics. And then even in the states where they, you know, couldn't vote, like place like New York and Ohio, there are actually a lot of loopholes and thousands of people did vote and did get organized. And a central theme of that piece is, you know, we are, we are the true Americans, you know, and sometimes that actually came out in, in antebellum politics as a kind of, you know, anti-immigration, you know, like there was occasionally fusion between, you know, between, you know, black political figures and at least the political parties that were most skeptical of kind of Catholic immigration to say, you know, why are these people get to claim Americanness over us? They just showed up. We are, we are, we've been here since the beginning. That, um, that is a rooted and a real thing. And I don't think that's going to go away in terms of U.S. politics. And I don't think we should kind of imagine our, our creatively in, or internationalize our way around that. I think I would prefer to kind of use that. I just, my, my issue is, you know, using that, um, in, in the Douglas way rather than in the, in the, in the 1619 way, which is, which is to kind of, um, anchor the American story around if, you know, I'll go, I'll go with Ryan on this about, you know, centering the, the black freedom struggle. Although a lot of historians I, I respect, you know, say that there is no such thing. It's, you know, this is, these are, these are separate historical conjunctures. These are not like there isn't, this is, this is another mythos, but, but to center that is as a story, as a narrative is a really powerful. And I think it's not just that it's a good, it's not just that it's like it had a good outcome. It's that it's a, it shows the power, the force of popular mobilization. It shows, you know, this is my own work about early, about anti-slavery politics is all about, I mean, I'm going to take issue with what you said, something you said earlier, Ryan, about how, you know, slavery was destroyed almost by accident. Like, no, this is like the conscious fruit of a, <laughs> of a, of a militant mobilization, you know, that it was accelerated by what the South did, but, but, but had its roots in what um, northern activists and organizers did. And then same thing with civil rights. And these are really powerful, you know, and absolutely friendly narratives for the left. And I think we should seize them. But there's, there's, yeah, there's a lot of agency. This is the thing yes. that we're countering, like the determinism. There's a lot, so much agency in the struggle. And, and like, it's also epistemic. Like, look, we, you know, it, we don't have to think of black Americans as monolithic to understand that anyone who's been oppressed in their epistemic understanding of the injustice is at this, you know, you don't have to go to like the Hegel master slave dialectic to get this, right? Like if somebody's being oppressed by the state and by others, uh, they understand the ideals of equality and liberty in ways that those privileged not to, to have to think about it, you know, don't necessarily do, right? And so, like, those that, that then act to actually 
become free and to fight for those changes that bring our political realities aligned with those founding ideals, right? In some ways, they really are the most American, insofar as American is something that's tied not to ethnicity, religion, or, or geography, but to political institutions and ideals, right? Based on supposed universal truths, which I think we can, we can agree, like equality and liberty, uh, are, are whether by nature or nature's God, things that everyone, um, you know, that that's what has to be made politically real for everyone. And so like, there is a sense in like the struggle itself manifests, you know, through that agency, uh, a reality that confers upon people the ability to tell people that haven't been in the struggle what they don't know. Right. So I think there's something important to that. And I just want to put in a quick plug along, along those lines to some extent, if you read one other Frederick Douglass piece, you know, if you want to get beyond um, what to the slave is the 4th of July, you should read uh, something he wrote after the war, after the Civil War called Our Composite Nation, which is an amazing, uh, I think it was in the 1870s at some point. It's an amazing kind of, it's not, it's not actually, you know, politically radical in a kind of class centered way that I would want it to be, but it's an, it's a very powerful and egalitarian vision of a polyglot, of a truly polyglot America that, that comes from a place of sort of recognizing both difference and common cause around these ideals. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a non, woolly headed moral arc of, you know, arc of moral justice kind of vision of the United States that, you know, has never actually existed, but it's a, but it's a powerful and it's absolutely a kind of an American, an Americanist, you know, perspective on the world. But it also does have, you know, he talks a lot about Chinese immigration. It's a really, it's a, it's a piece that I think like, you know, contemporary liberals, it should be in like the canon of like 15 things that they read. Very cool. <laughs> we, we should link to that. Let's yeah. Link to yeah. It. Okay. Yeah, my I friend Peter Wurzbicki teaches it every year, at, at, and it's like he—he's like drummed Fantastic. it into my head. That yeah. one and the awesome. uh, the eulogy for Abraham Lincoln; those are the the three, my three kind of go tos. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it, I mean, <clears throat> it strikes me that like this, you know, in a kind of political sense, when you're talking about history, you know, we 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 talked about uh, the. You know, establishing facts like like looking up the archives and the diaries and so on. But another function of history is like telling stories about ourselves, and um, that uh, the the story of the Black Freedom Struggle is and and especially I think when you when you tell it in a way like with the the polyglot America thing that that like basically anybody can hook into, you know, as long as you're kind of culturally sensitive about it to some degree like that, that seems to be like a really powerful narrative. And what is, what, what is missing in American politics? It seems like to me, you know, when, when, when I read your piece about the know nothings that it's like you, you had back in the 1850s, this group of like incredibly militant organized, uh, you know, even militia people, you know, who are, who are like building power. You mean like the wide awakes? Wide awakes. Sorry. Yes. That's my. No, nothing's my, were the, were the anti immigrant bigots. Yeah. 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 I'm like, my, my God. How can <laughs> okay. I? Quite, I was kind of like, the, no, I mean, they were, there were some anti slavery no nothings. I'm all messed up here. I'm like, okay, I see what you mean now, though. Yeah. No, no, my, my, my mistake there. Huge mistake. Uh, <laughs> Cooper is written out of history, uh, for, forever. <laughs> Canceled. Uh, Cooper no, wants the, to, Cooper wants to send them all back, uh, to, and by back, he means to Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to send myself back. I think, but at any rate, no, the, you know, uh, 
like these stories, like the, you you see now in in the United States an incredibly mobilized, organized, and disciplined right wing that is, uh, you know, basically trying to get Trump into the White House again. Um, and like they're they're mobilized and organized around things that are totally fucking insane for the most part, uh, complete crackpot nonsense. But like the 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 difference in energy can't be denied, I think. And on the left, you have, you know, a tiny handful of kind of socialists or social Democrats or whatever in Congress and legislatures and so on. And then a much, much larger group, a plurality of the country uh, and the elected representatives who are just sort of feckless cowards and or corrupt and or, you know, just timid, like like people who won't they're scared of their own shadow. And like when they do take action, it's to like funnel subsidies to Raytheon and fucking like Biogen uh, in, in Massachusetts. And so like the in terms of ideology and history, it seems like a, a critical task is to try to t- try to tell some sort of story that can motivate you know, the, the missing people, the people who are just sort of like, I want the country to be a democratic republic ish, like, like something where my vote counts at least to some degree, you know, and it's not just like sort of like just lying down in front of the Trump bulldozer again. And, and that's where, you know, I read through the 1619 project and it's like, what do I, what do I tell myself to like get out and, and like knock doors and, uh, you know, f- uh, join some organization, whether it's DSA or individual, indivisible or anything else. Um, there's, yeah. it's not, there's no, there's no passion. There's no fury there, you know, and that, and like you were talking about Douglas, it's the motivation is missing. Where's Bob Seeger's thunder? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, but I think that, I mean, th- this is what I'll say, and I'll, I'll maybe I'll say something, you know, I, I talked to Rebecca Onion about this for Slate, but like, you know, just my like plug for, you know, scaring liberals or scaring progressives. I worry about the, the way that the politics of history are going under this, under this new order of things that, that we've been writing the same column. Every liberal has been writing and, and Jacobin runs it too. The same column about, Hey, guess what? Martin Luther King said something besides don't judge people by the content of their character. You know, Martin Luther King wasn't just the sort of a colorblind, you know, kind of anti-affirmative action pundit. Actually, he was he was part of another thing that happened. Um, and he had other views, especially including about economics and about, you know, equality. Um, and yet and yet the truth is Martin Luther King is not in the 1619 Project. Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King does not show up. In a lot of the kind of new liberal discourse about race and racism in, in, I don't think Martin Luther King plays a big deal or, or the, the legacy of civil rights to some extent does not seem to people like, you know, A. Philip Randolph, Bayard Rustin don't seem to play a big part in either the historical memory or the political consciousness of, um, you know, the, the other books that I talked about, you know, Ibram Kendi's book and, you know, and, um, uh, uh, Isabel Wilkerson's book, the mind, the kind of the, the new liberal order of things doesn't have much. I, I talked about how it doesn't have much, 
use for celebrating the Civil War or at least understanding the kind of the Civil War as a as a as a radical triumph for social justice, you know, limited and, you know, counter revolutionized and yet nevertheless a, you know, a historically utterly massive and almost unprecedented event, you know, uh, that should absolutely be owned by both the left and all progressives. Um, but I think I worry that they're going to lose the civil rights movement too. Um, you know, that they're gonna, that there isn't a deep effort to kind of claim that, that, that sort of like that, that era of history as a moment of mass mobilization where a, a, a broad, you know, organized, but also fundamentally democratic kind of, um, resistance to tyranny, um, you know, on the basis of, 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 of a kind of a claim to political equality came, you know, in social and economic, and, and also, of course, economic equality by the end, um, was achieved major victories, although it was also beaten back and, and contained by the kind of rising neoliberal era, blah, 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 blah. But on neither on the left nor in, in liberalism do I sense a huge enthusiasm for that story in comparison to sort of even in the Obama years where it was like Obama's the vindication of this. It was like we went from claiming victory and doing post-racialism to doing like endless racialism. And there's like there, there, there wasn't any space in the middle for liberals. And I think that offers huge, huge openings for the right. If you I read that you mentioned Chris Rufo, uh, Ryan, I read the New Yorker yeah. profile of him. I mean, you know, he's a formidable guy. I wouldn't I, I don't want to fuck with him. Like he sees that there's an opening to kind of, in effect, claim a lot of these. And he hasn't he's gone with it with this. You know, he's gone deep into the sort of, you know, trying to bring out the this, you know, legal, uh, you know, in effect, this kind of, um, you know, sub dis, you know, sub a, a, a school of le- of like radical legal thought, critical race theory into the mainstream. But I mean, that move could be done over and over again in a lot of other ways for history. I mean, the 1776 project, fortunately, is so ham fisted and, and, and like dopey that it, and, and there was real, really no heft behind it because the current conservative, you know, mentality, as I write in the piece, is more about trolling than it is about building. But if they got their act together and wanted to build and wanted to build a narrative that said, hey, look, we're going to claim Lincoln. We're going to claim. I mean, in a funny way, D'Souza is Dinesh D'Souza, this like total oaf is actually doing this. But fortunately, he's doing it in such a, a boneheaded way that it doesn't really cohere into anything. But if they were to sort of more systematically say, we're claiming Lincoln and King and, and, and that whole story and we're saying that that's a story that about matters. liberty and equality and 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 it and it's the same story as the founders that's a really powerful story and i don't think that you know obviously it's you know historically it misses a lot but i don't think it i don't think the liberalism elite liberalism and even progressivism is 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 really ready to counter that in its current mode no, no. So, so first of all, maybe tell people the 1776 project. Uh, did Trump initiate that? Like, what's the what's the history behind that? Yeah, that was like a half-assed thing that Trump did at the end of his term when he was like throwing out vague, kind of, you know, sort of, you know, culture war. You know, just like tossing culture war darts. You know, he was going to do the Garden of Heroes. You know, uh, in response to the statues being torn down. And he, by the end, he had proposed a list of like 250 statues. I mean, I actually think this would be totally awesome because all the people on it, like 90% of them are good 
frankly. And the other, and there aren't any Confederates, you know, he, there is a retreat happening from the lost cause, as I argue in the piece. Um, it's, 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 it's all kind of, it's all union, anti-slavery, you know, reconstruction figures. Um, and then, you know, also, I don't know, like Casey Stengel and people, I don't know. I'm I'm not sure if, if he's on it, but just like random sports figures from the, you know, mid 20th century. Um, but, but it's like, um, I think Yogi Berra is definitely on it. Um, anyway, it, it's like, that would have been amazing if they had, if we had like 200, if the, Trump had the idea of, do, of like lazily proposing this in his first year and we somehow got this by the end and like DC had this like arena of just like dopey statues. Okay. But, but then he also put together this report that was like meant to be an answer to 1619, but it was just like 10 pages. It didn't have any, maybe it was like 20 pages. It didn't have any, um, real, real, you know, it, it didn't have, um, any actual sort of working historians on it. I think, you know, it was basically a sort of a product of kind of like a splinter group of like West Coast Straussians that like wrote this thing up, but they're not, none of them are engaged in actual American history. And it, it I don't think the right has really pushed it because I don't think, yeah, they're, they're not, they're, they're actually not organized on this in the way that I think they could be at least yet. Um, but I think it, what it represented, if you read that report, it was striking to me how, I mean, I think liberals just immediately attacked it for being slapdash and, and, you know, characteristic of Trumpism in all its ways is, you know, sort of superficial and, and goofy. And, um, you know, it had a few, it had a few like sort of ham handed sort of rejections of the idea that, you know, cause of course it has to take the op- sort of, you know, this culture war is, is always whatever you say, I'd say the absolute opposite. So it had to sort of reject any idea of like slavery being woven into the American fabric, et cetera, et cetera. But what it didn't do was defend or contextualize slavery at all, which is a huge difference from conservatism a generation ago. It did not say, okay, it wasn't about slavery, it was about states' rights. It didn't say, um, Actually, you know, um, the Civil War was this great tragedy and Reconstruction was kind of a, you know, a government overreach, which is a thing that, you know, conservatives said across the 20th century. It said it was like Reconstruction was like overthrown and a new tyranny called Jim Crow was set up. And it's like that is a on one hand, I think it's good that we're like winning intellectually that they don't they, that they're Should we call old. that progress. Can we call that progress? I don't you know, I'm careful of the word progress. I don't know. It's something. But, but it's but it opens <laughs> up a flank on our side because on the broad left right. of center side, because if they went deeper with this, if they said, OK, yeah, we are going to basically take your narrative and but we're going to we're going to do like serious D'Souzaism and we're going to say like we're going to appropriate yeah. This is the story and you guys are out there doing your DNA and your original sin and, you know, kind of, you know, doing your liberal masochism and your like, you know, That's race right. to dinner, you know, Zoom meetings where, you know, everybody apologizes for being a white woman or something like that's not that is not going to take back any state houses, you know, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> As, as you say, history is uh, not destiny, right? But it's a battleground. And uh, the liberals are fucking this up for us, even if the right isn't doesn't have their act together. Because, like, uh, you know, it really matters that, you know, Martin Luther King is seen as a socialist and understood for how much hatred he received. Because in the whitewashing, right, uh, especially the national holidays, right, like, we, we erase the history of how viciously – Socialists were attacked, 
right? Whether it's Dr. King or, or, or other anarchists or socialists. And, and that has an obvious parallel to today when the same kind of attacks uh, where Biden labels socialists and anarchists fucking terrorists, right? Like, it's really important to see the history, um, you know, so that we can say, look, the civil rights really mattered. And, 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 and this is really important to our history. And these were great struggles that, that benefited our country. But also look how much these people were fought against by forces of the day. And look how that parallels to today, right? No, I know. And I think, I mean, this does then connect to the, you know, the irony, the paradox, the, the trap of our time. Where, you know, this to my the other stuff that I've written for Jacobin about class the alignment and where progressive politics is today, because to me, the obvious movement in our in our era that can actually latch on to the story of, to some extent, the, the, the black freedom movement or some of those, you know, in a, in a really literal way, borrow from, you know, the kind of political economic vision of Martin Luther King, um, but also the kind of narrative of struggle and progress that goes back to Frederick Douglass. The obvious movement that is of the most relevance today that has the capacity to win, um, you know, broad based majoritarian support and yet also, um, you know, moral and material um, radicalism on, on behalf of people who are like directly affected by it is a broadly class-based movement that would nevertheless absolutely address, uh, you know, racial inequalities in a far more substantive way than the kind of, you know, a few hundred, a few million billion dollars here to farmers of color, et cetera, et cetera. Right. You know, if you had Medicare for all, you would, you know, you, you know, if you had job guarantee, a job guarantee for all, if you had a, you know, a, a $20 minimum wage for all, you would absolutely do massive racial redistribution far more than any reparations program, frankly, would in a substantive lasting way. And you have a coalition that can build this. Um, and, but what you don't have is a Democratic Party or Democratic electorate that has any stomach for this or any self-interest for it. And so you don't get it. You know, we saw that with Bernie and he had his leap and he jumped for the ring and he didn't get it. And, you know, there's always going to be a part of the Democratic Party, the Bernie Warren wing. And yeah, I'll be I'm going to be ecumenical that that is going to exist going forward, but they're never going to be dominant. They're, no, they're never going to actually be able to pull this off without, you know, without without sort of, in effect, organizing the working class. And um, and it's not going to be enough to sort of build another, you know, anti-slavery movement or another New Deal or another civil rights movement unless you have some, some you know, powerful universal exhibition. I mean, and this is like, you know, people, you know, black liberals like Heather McGee, you know, his recent book basically makes this exact point. And, but there's no, and so, and, you know, people read her book and like it about how, you know, we need to harness this, these sort of universal ideas that will then actually do a lot of the redistribution that we want. But that's, that's, that's that's just like not evident in our politics at all. That's not evident in our cultural politics at all. And it's not evident in the policies really either. Um, I don't think. And okay, maybe I'm being too harsh. There's some stuff in like, you know, in the big, in the, in the, in the new public investment emphasis that, that, that pushes at least a little bit in that direction. I, I'm not an apocalyptic guy about this, but I really don't see that, that thunder coming, uh, down the road for us. Yeah. Well, I'll just note that like Bernie, Bernie damn near had it there for mm. like, like, like two, three weeks. You know, yeah, Bi- Biden lost the first three primary. He got fucking stomped in the first three primaries. Yeah. And it, he basically Jim Clyburn pulled Biden's chestnuts out of the fire single handedly. Yeah. 
But it was also a near thing. Like they had to pull out every stop. It was like unprecedented that a that a that a person who was like in second place in delegates, uh, 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 Mayor Pete, would withdraw. For, at such I know. An early no. stage. Oh, oh, Never Ryan. happened before. Ryan, Ryan, you're hitting me like where it hurts at the, at the deepest <laughs> so, at the deepest core. Yeah. So I think, but there's an optimistic read on. But this, this is about the yeah contingency. This is contingency, though, right? That was so close, right? It, it was. It could have gone the other way. Yeah, and and so there's a you know that like the in a number of states, Biden won a majority of people who supported Medicare for all. You know, so it's a question of basically getting the the Democratic majority uh, to like basically stand behind the courage, like have the courage of its convictions. To say like, no, we we want the candidate who actually wants to do the thing that we say we want, not the candidate who says he's not going to do the thing we want because of like X, Y, Z, like I'm corrupt, basically. And that, you know, like it's sort of like the learn, learn, learn. But Democrats lose like, you know, non-college educated voters each election. You know, I mean, it's just I I don't Biden. Yeah. Biden like flattened that a little bit, but when when he's gone and we've got you know Kamala and Buttigieg contesting the nomination, I mean, I don't know. Oh, I think it's tough. <laughs> and maybe it's even worse if they because if they dive into the culture war stuff, that that's going to make it even harder. No, right? exactly. And, it, and, it, and I mean, you know, this is this is um, I don't know. Maybe this is too hot to handle, but like the, I mean, it's absolutely true that for one. You know, you did see a little bit of movement among black voters away from the Democrats in the last election. I don't really know how significant that is because overwhelm on the whole, overwhelmingly, you know, that is the demographic group that is like most democratic. But if you have a situation where, I mean, this is to, to pair like my scare story earlier, where the Democrats through their own kind of cultural politics are by and large very attentive. And I think they, they mostly are. I don't expect the, you know, black democratic voting rate to go below 80%, 80, 85%. I don't think they, the, the way I think Democrats and, you know, black political, you know, elected officials are, you know, are very much part of this project. I mean, we saw this, we saw this in primaries, but, you know, in general elections, like they're, they're, you know, they're really at the center of the party right now. Um, you know, morally, if you think about like the influence that somebody like Stacey Abrams wields, and, you know, not, not, inst- and increase, and to some extent institutionally, and I think that might, may grow. And I think you could see, you could argue that something like 1619 reflects that, the, the sort of the, the, you know, the way that sort of the, the power that white liberals are willing to accord kind of African Americans writ large, you know, including working class African Americans. And yet, other kind of non-white minorities are are voting are 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 you know especially working class are are defecting in larger and larger numbers and i worry that that republican in my dark vision of a kind of like you know effective D'Souzaism, where you have a republican that runs on lincoln civil you know you, that runs on you know fairness and, and not just in that corny like you know you could say bush and and romney and others have done this but i think really putting meat on the bones um, in this idea of, you know, even appropriating a kind of um, uh, our composite nation, you know, just emphasizing Americans, the people who are he- here rather than the people who are outside the border. And to say, you know, the Latinos and the Asians and the, and the African-Americans, but, you know, the, of course, they'll say that. But but really, fundamentally, the Latinos and the Asians that are here um, are going to be part of this project and we're going to have this story to give them. 
and and the and 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 liberals are kind of trapped in a kind of paralysis where it's just gonna it's just it's just produ- it produces gilded age politics where you have these like racialized dividing lines and you don't have any kind of class politics you have you know i don't know i don't know just- and, and Josh Hawley, meanwhile, could totally do that and could totally talk about anti-monopoly stuff and, and just, you know, appropriate it's- so much of the class stuff as well. And, you know, it's that liberals, the liberals don't let the, the left influence the, the politics, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, I but mean, here, here's, well, maybe a more pessimistic and or uh, uh, optimistic note. Um, you know, you, you, you talk a lot in your essay about how. Uh, you know, conservatives have sort of come to internalize a liberal, uh, notion of, you know, what the, the, that slavery was bad, that the redeemers were bad, uh, that Jim Crow was bad and so on. Um, but it strikes me that that might kind of be a tactical feint. Here's a bit of a substack from Richard Hanania, who's like oh, yeah. one of the big, anti-critical right race theory guy yeah. yeah um he's talking about the the anti-wokeness agenda and what it would involve um at the very least he says uh quote eliminating disparate impact making the law require evidence of intentional discrimination so the 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 upshot of that would be you know to say that like you can't say something is racist just because black people get hurt worse as a matter of like empirical reality. You have to show that somebody was like deliberately racist in their mental intention, you know, like a sort of, right. you know, a, a, a mens rea or whatever. And you're talking about a, a first degree sure. murder versus a second degree murder. Um, he goes on to say, uh, quote, getting rid of the concept of hostile work environment or defining it in extremely narrow and explicit terms, making sure that it does not restrict political or religious speech, repealing the executive orders that created and expanded affirmative action among government contractors in the federal workforce. So this guy is against the Civil Rights Act uh, and the way that it functions, like basically across the board. And I think that would just tend to suggest that he is openly racist. Like he wants to like define racism down to the point that, you know, like it's basically impossible to prove if, if black people have been hurt or not. And so, you know, on the one hand, you could say, uh, this is positive for any kind of like emancipatory politics because, uh, you know, like these, these guys are doubling down on like, you know, white minoritarian rule in a country that's like 60% non-Hispanic white. Um, but on the negative, you know, end of it, uh, there is no, you know, that they, they have this energy behind them. They're like, you, you have all these anti-woke laws in like, like over a dozen States, I think that are basically saying you're not allowed to teach accurate history or indeed like, you know, if you interpret the law strictly like basic, like Copernicus and stuff, you know, you're not allowed to teach divisive concepts. Oh, heliocentrism right. and evolution. Or, you <laughs> yeah. Know, it's like, and, and like, are Democrats going to do anything about this or just going to sort of lay down and, you know, let themselves be steamrolled and sort of imagine a future kind of, you know, uh, like, 
conservative Stalinism where you're not allowed to like, like there's just this incredibly bizarre set of things you're not allowed to, to mention, you know? Um, but it strikes me as like kind of, kind of a jump ball at the moment, uh, you know, because like conservatives are seeing that this, this type of basically, I would say sublimated racism for all of their rhetorical denunciations of like the redeemers and slavery and stuff you know, they're seeing white people getting pissed off. That's where the juice is. That's where you get people into the school boards getting really pissed off. But then it's like, can we mobilize a, a kind of counteroffensive to that? And that it's an open question, I guess. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, there, there may be some over overreach that's happening on that on that, you know, to the extent that, you know, they they end up coming for, you know, in, in a way that I think you can plausibly frame that as coming for the Civil Rights Act. And that 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 would allow a kind of reclamation or, I mean, you know, I don't want to say that like, you know, broadly Democrats have abandoned the civil rights act. Like that's not that in all this talk about narratives, I recognize that that has been that, you know, the civil rights act and voting rights act are really at the center of what the Democrats have been caring about a lot lately. So, um, you know, there may be, but, but, but Ryan, I'm less optimistic than you about, about that being easily, recognizable to non-New York Times readers as effectively racism. You know, I, I really yeah. just, I, I really just don't think that that, and I think actually the tendency, I mean, I agree with you that, you know, I, I don't even, I don't necessarily disagree that that, that it functionally operates that way, but I think rhetorically and politically, I don't think it can be, you know, simply it can be dismissed. And I think, and I, and I don't think that it's not clear to me that it even can be dismissed among working class non-white voters. Um, I need to see more evidence about that. Um, but I'm not certain that this new form of, um, it, it, you know, if it were muscled up and it were, you know, if this anti-woke agenda were, um, you know, I, and I think some of the bills right now, yeah, are a little bit, are, 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 you know, way overcooked. But I think if, uh, I think a sort of a regulated version of that, I think it could be politically effective. And I worry that it, I don't think the Democrats actually will take it all lying down. I think that's not, that's not how Democrats work when it comes to culture war. That's not my read of how people have reacted to this CRT stuff. They, what they tend to do more or less is, Take the bait exactly as Republicans have framed it, and have the same argument, the exact argument that the Republicans want them That's to have. Thing, right? Taking the side that Republicans want them to take, but and making the case, you know, being right mostly, but making the case in a way that is not politically advantageous. When over and over again, you know, what we need to do is change the subject and reframe what right. the center of politics is. I mean, and only Bernie Sanders somehow can do this. But and it's not that, you know, we need to not care about voting rights or civil rights. I mean, Bernie has never, you know, been that kind of guy. But it's that, you know, we need to fuse the struggle against this in a really urgent way to why does Jeff Bezos have a yacht that has another yacht? Well, you know, well, we can barely get somebody to, you know, earn $11 an hour to like care for somebody else's grandmother. You know, like, why no, is that? This, yeah. No, and I, I know I, I don't, I'm not preaching. I know I'm preaching to the choir here. I know this is your take too, but I think that that's frustrating. Yeah. Let, let me explain. I, I can tell you why Jeff Bezos <laughs> has a second yacht to go along with his first yacht. It's because his first yacht has sales 
Um, and that means that you can't land a helicopter on it because the helicopter blades would run into oh, the mass of the sails. So inconvenient. It's physics. Crash it's into just the physics. Ocean, and you would lose valuable employees or, or you know, whatever. It's about the workers, they're, Matt. I don't know Associates. of Bezos. And yeah. so you have to have a second yacht with a helicopter landing pad that trails around the first one. And that's why, you know, it's perfectly logical. There's nothing wrong with it. In fact, I support it. And, um, it just it would, it, it would be crazy to me that and but this is will happen that the 2024 election will be a lot more about you know ab- about you know s- critical race theory than about Jeff Bezos's yacht like and i i just uh, you know that's already that's already happened that is frustrating yeah. I, what how do we balance the fact that cuz here's the other thing though like instead of the culture war though there is like a Gramscian war of position and and like we, we do need in our education, part of the reason the right can do this, because the right and the liberals both think of causation and, and everything in terms of like individuals. They don't think of structures. And so like we do need to teach about racism insofar as like racism is not mean thoughts in someone's head, right? It's not like, yeah. what, what you know, if we need to eliminate all the mean thoughts in everyone's head, that's how we fight racism. Well, of course, that sounds you know, futile. Uh, but if we could actually educate people in our institutions about the true nature of racism and its history – uh, then the right can't get away with that nonsense and do reverse racism bullshit. So yeah, I, don't know. I, I, I think the left desperately yeah. needs a like an actual. I, I think the left desperately needs critical race theory. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna uh, I'll pitch it yeah. in my way, because it actually, but actually, the left is incredibly good at doing uncritical race theory, which is just saying. <laughs> and I'm not trying to single you out, Ryan, but like saying everything that the right does, that's like one way or another racist. And everything that we're doing that is the left is like effectively anti-racist. And racism is still, it's kind of unhistoricized. Racism has changed, you know, folks. Racism has changed. You know, it, it has. It's a different, and, and recognizing where it lives and how it operates and what 21st century racism looked like looks like and not sort of just immediately being like that's Jim Crow that's Jim Crow that's Jim Crow that's bad yeah. I think I'm not not saying that that move is completely off the table for our politics but I think internally for for progressives broadly to think about the ways that racism has itself also historically it's historically contingent it's a product of specific circumstances in the United in in the history of North America and it has absolutely evolved in the last 50 years in enormous ways and I don't think the left has a really good theory of 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 sort of like you know you have there are some there are some promising moments where you know the Tanahasi Coates line you know it's not a matter of the heart racism is not a matter of the heart it's a matter of the wallet and you know I think there are there are like good epigrams that kind of point towards how things operate and and how in effect you know in so many ways not to be too specific not to this this doesn't account for all of it but more or less, if you read, you know, Adana Rizmani's piece about mass incarceration is just one index of, of, you know, racial disparities in the country, which are like staggering. You know, a huge element of th- this really makes it very crude, but is that you have, you finally get a some degree of political and social liberalization. I mean, sort of equalization, the end of, uh, like, like utter apartheid style oppression. At the exact historical moment that you have the neoliberal kind of, you know, subjugation of the working class. So you have millions of people entering from a kind of subjugated sub working class position into the working class at almost the exact moment that the working class itself gets fucked harder than it's been in a long time. And but I think I think that that and that doesn't 
that 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 you know an uh, 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 unsympathetic critic of that will say, well, you're ignoring racism. No, you're doing you're you're making that point and saying that actually, if you look at mass incarceration, what's really jumped is the amount of people without high school degrees that are getting incarcerated, and and that's jumped far more spectacularly than any strictly racialized measure. This is all racialized because who do you think has a disproportionate amount of not you know, high school degrees because these people have suffered historic racism and are starting at the, at the sub bottom. But, but, but it's the wallet that's, that it's, it's, it's the wallet that's keeping all, that's keeping everything, that's keeping this hierarchy in place. And I don't think that the left really has a critical understanding of that. I think it still generally tends to think too often about basically about bigotry rather than about, you know, we say structural racism a lot. Um, I don't think we really know what that means. Well, let me let me uh, to maybe to close up here because we probably kept you too long to uh, plug my book in a capitalist fashion. <laughs> um, but but you know the a, a solid argument here you can you can you can judge it as a as a credentialed academic in a top three American uh, high, institution of higher education. Um, you've got more money. That means you must be correct. Uh, but that the the you know. The, the the neoliberal turn happened all over the world, but it was worse in the United States than it was in almost any other country. And I think the reason for that uh, is probably uh, racism. And the reason that the United States was not um, in it did not have social democratic reforms to the same degree as, uh, you know, a lot of other European countries, the Nordics, Germany, France. Switzerland and so on was also probably racism. And this is like an obstacle to like working class solidarity, right? You, you, it, it, it was harder to get uh, working class people to, to join unions. And, um, you know, it was easier for employers to exploit divisions in like a very diverse country and so on and so forth. And, and I think when it comes to neoliberalism, my, my argument is you don't get the neoliberal, neoliberal turn to the same degree. And I mean, the United States push was very influential in other countries. So maybe it wouldn't be as bad in, uh, across the world without the United States, uh, unless neoliberals could hook into, uh, the, that history of racism. You know, the, that, uh, you know, you have Hillary Clinton talking about super predators. You know, you have, uh, the New Republic, uh, selling welfare reform, you know, with like a picture of a single black woman smoking a cigarette. You know, it's like, let's just starve the mothers. And it's like tapping into that visceral, that, that history of, you know, just like, uh, vile fucking prejudice to, to be honest. And I think, you know, my, my, my argument, I mean, the only argument I've seen is to say that like, you know, number one, my minority people, especially black Americans, this is not good for you. And also to white people, white Americans, this is how the, the ruling class is screwing you over. This is how your interests are being sold out. You are being sold a bill of goods, you know, say, saying that like the, if if we you know cut off the welfare cheats and and so on and so forth that is going to you know we're down to your political benefit and the result is inequality desperation 
uh, fucking opioid overdose that has hit, you know, white people worst of, of any group, at least so far. I mean, black people are kind of catching up in that regard, which is really quite, uh, quite a statement given the number of people who have died. And so like, I don't know. My argument is like, 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 uh, in, to sort of tie it all together with the like 1619 project and, and talking about national identity and the way that, uh, people think about themselves to say, you know, like bring back some of that old time religion about how, you know, uh, from Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King, our freedom is bound up, uh, as, as white people with the freedom of every other person in the country and, and nobody else can really live, you know, even if you have tons of money, uh, you can't, you can't really be free unless everyone is free in a democratic republic. And that, you know, I don't know if there there are better arguments, but it's the the only one I see, and it's the only one you can buy. And <laughs> September fourteenth next month. Okay, all right. I'm glad, Ryan. I haven't missed it. That's exciting. Okay, good. Wait, can't wait for that. Well, I mean, I'm supposed to answer. Uh, I'm no Jeff Bezos. Um, I do. I do have as a Brooklyn gentrifier. I have a bike that requires another bike as a support bike to kind of sustain <laughs> and and re 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 resupply the first bike. Um, I agree with you, basically. I mean, I think I think that's an element. I mean, I think there's a very complicated history about why neoliberalism. I think there are other factors that also would yeah. explain why neoliberalism was worth here. No but doubt. I don't. I would not deny that that's an element. I would not deny that that kind of, um, you know, whatever racism of the heart, uh, was, uh, you know, played a, a huge role in late 20th century U.S. politics from the Willie Horton ad to Bill Clinton at Stone Mountain yep. to uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What I would say though is to historicize that a minute is to say that I do think our, our present moment, despite what we hear, uh, over and over again about how Donald Trump has like single-handedly brought back the Ku Klux Klan is that actually I would plot the trajectory a little bit differently. I would say that if you think about, you know, I just the article has a little dive into like the pro-Confederate politics of like half of Bush's cabinet. If you look at the 80s and 90s and even into the early 2000s a little bit seriously, you'll see you'll see racism of the heart way more loudly than you do today, actually, even in the era of Trump, in my view. Um, that, that I don't think that racism of the wallet has changed much, but I think racism of the heart has been diminished. At whether And again, whether we want to in in politics, despite all of the, you know, you know, despite all of, you know, Trump's dog whistles, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I don't, I'm not d- dismissing them, but I am saying that I do think that there's like a certain amount of, you know, I'm not going to call it progress, but a historical change that has happened in the last like 30 years on that front, um, which is, by the way, not capable of addressing the real inequalities, racial and otherwise, that continue to haunt this country. And so um, moving beyond that racism of the heart is 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 it's not enough. And I don't think it's enough for us on the left to just say structural racism when we're just kind of mean a lot of people in structures who are racist or, um, or, or, or something similar. I think we have to connect it to that. I mean, I agree with you, Ryan, we have to connect it to the universal struggle. Yeah. Unions, everybody got to be in a union. Um, <laughs> we got to raise taxes on the, on the Jeff Bezos, the top 1% by, you know, up to 99%. And, um, and it's, you know, it's just, 
Ta- ta- like like vulgar Marxism, you know, it's basically <laughs> it's like take from those who have more than they could ever spend and give to the people who are fucking starving. And like, you know, it's there's a few maybe yeah, tactics like- you could use to sort of like like ease that pitch. But, if, if, you know, it's a, if ultimately a question of like organizing people who are very difficult to organize and there's no sort of magic formula to that one. Well, I just thought maybe we could, we, Ryan, we could go out on the point of, um, you know, connecting the particular to the universal with a great speech from John Mercer Langston, who was a black Ohio uh, political leader in the 1850s. Um, I think actually yeah. the first black elected official in America in Oberlin. And he writes, um, this is a speech that he gave actually in 1858. And he says, it has been discovered at last that slavery is no respecter of persons, that in its far reaching and broad sweep, it strikes down alike the freedom of the black man and the freedom of the white one. This movement can no longer be regarded as a sectional one. It is a great national one. It is not confined in its benevolent charitable offices to any particular class. Its broad philanthropy knows no complexional bounds. It cares for the freedom, the rights of all. Some may call this representation a fancy sketch, rhetorical gammon. But it must be evident to everyone conversant with American affairs that we are now realizing in our national experience the important and solemn truth of history, that enslavement and degradation of one portion of the population fastens galling, festering chains upon the limbs of the other. For a time, these chains may be invisible, yet they are iron-linked and strong, and the slave power, becoming strong-handed and defiant, will make them felt." This identification of the interests of the white and colored people of the country, this peculiarly national feature of the anti-slavery movement, is one of its most cheering, hope-inspiring, and hope-supporting characteristics. This fact is encouraging because the white Americans cannot stand as idle spectators to the struggle, but must unite with us in battling against this fell enemy if they themselves would save their own freedom. goes on but that 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 line gets me i get chills and i think it i think it really lands and you know it would have been cool if that had been in the 1619 project yeah <laughs> nice that's a that's a great note to end on yeah thank you matt carp pleasure to have you friend of the pod matt carp everybody should read the harper's piece history is end 1619 and the politics of the past thank you for coming on the the pod thank you guys this was great i had fun Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode. Strange how the night moves With autumn closing in